0: Hey, Good morning everyone, glad you all made it safe, hopefully your house isn't too damaged from the storm, it
1: sounds like we had
0: a a tree go down, so Um, yeah, I'm just glad you're all here safe, and um, if you guys want to stand with me, we'll do the call to worship this morning, taken from Psalm 89, this is God's eternal covenant with David. Um, So I'm going to read the bold section, and you guys can just read the um, italicized section. From Psalm 89. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever, and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens
1: praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the Holy Ones.
0: If you'll turn with me to song number one, Before the Throne. We'll
1: be singing about
0: saying, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, and they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So there we read about um, our sinfulness, that without Christ, we do not seek Him or love Him, and that this is the human condition. And so it's when we come before a holy God that we realize our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. So you guys will read with me the confession of sin there. Almighty, eternal God and Father, we confess and acknowledge unto you that we are full of sin in all our life. We do not fully believe your word, nor follow your holy commandments. Remember your goodness, and for your name's sake, be gracious unto us, and forgive us our iniquity, which is great. Amen. You'll turn with me to number two. We'll sing in Christ alone. Christ that our sins are forgiven and the wrath and curse of God has been removed. So our two readings this morning are from Genesis 3 and Galatians 3. And here we read about um, this promise of Christ um, in Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here, even in the midst of curse on the serpent, we read of this blessing that will come of Christ that will defeat Satan and the works of him. And then in Galatians 3, we read this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We pray with me, um, dear Lord. We thank you for your word, for your holiness, and we thank you most for sending Christ. That um, our sin has separated from you us from you, and um, has caused death and suffering in so many ways. But we thank you for sending Christ, the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, that who taking the curse that we deserve, has brought assurance to us that we can be adopted into your family by faith and that um, Christ has finished his work. So may we rest in that today. In your name we pray. Amen. And then finally, our um, confession of faith will be taken from the Heidelberg Catechism, questions 16 and 17, sort of answering the questions of why Jesus had to be both man and God. And so confession of faith is just where we publicly together confess the great truths of the faith, um, not only for our Remembrance, but to uh, proclaim those things. So I'll read the question, and if you guys will f- respond with the answer. So question 16. Why must he, meaning Christ, be very man and also perfectly righteous?
1: Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin, and one who is himself a sinner
0: cannot satisfy for others. And then question 17. Why must he, Christ, in one person be also very God? That
1: he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath, and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life.
0: Amen. You guys want to turn with me to Acts we will be continuing looking at the book of acts um, we'll be looking today at verses 12 through 36 and a couple weeks ago we just kind of tried to look at the book of acts as a whole we talked about how it often gets talked about um, as a book to use to settle debates about you know what mission strategy should we use or are the gifts of the spirit for today. so we kind of use it as a debate book sometimes other times we um, we'll see the stories in it and just kind of think that they're examples. So Peter prayed and got out of jail. You need to pray more and get out of the jails in your life. Or, I don't know. Maybe some of you have been in jail. I don't know. But, <laughs> um, but you know, Paul had great confidence before the leaders in the public. And so you need to have more confidence. And maybe you do need to have more confidence. I don't know. But, um, so we looked at the Acts. is not primarily written to give us more confidence or things like that. But it is really... Um, if we look at verse 1 of Acts, it is the continuation of what the risen Jesus does from heaven in sending his spirit and building his church. So like uh, Luke wrote in Acts 1, the Gospel of Luke is all that Jesus began to do and teach in his life, and his ministry, and his death. And the book of Acts is what, the implication is that Acts is what Christ from heaven continues to do and teach Um, by sending His Spirit. So we looked at the Ascension the first week, um, and then last week we talked about Pentecost. And so we tried to look at that from that perspective, that Christ has poured out His Spirit, and what does this mean? And so we, we talked about some of the misconceptions about Pentecost. People see it as an event that needs to recur in the Christian life over and over again, or some people do. But we talked about how that sort of sells short and actually undervalues what Pentecost was, that it was not only a fulfillment of the festival of Pentecost, which was this Jewish festival celebrating the first fruits of the harvest being gathered in, but it was also the reversal of Babel, if we talked about that a little bit. So some of you might not know what I'm talking about, but essentially Babel in Genesis 11 is this account of um, these people that try to work their way to God, build their own mountain to him, and God comes down and judges them and divides their languages And Pentecost is the reversal of that. It is Christ, or God coming down, rather, in the person of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit. And instead of bringing division, he brings unity around these languages, symbolizing the gospel going to the nations. So um, just a brief recap there, uh, just wanted to catch people up. So today we'll be looking at the first thing that happens after Pentecost. And uh, people refer to this as the the great Spirit-filled sermon that Peter gives right after Pentecost. And so I was thinking about that question. What, is, what do you think of when I say spirit-filled preaching or spirit, spirit-anointed preaching? And I think there's a lot of ideas that we can maybe have in our head or maybe we've heard people say sometimes it's um, you know an emotional feeling. That's when you know that it was spirit-filled preaching when I felt maybe goosebumps or something. Or um, some people associate it with motivational speaking. I don't know with motivational speaking. you know, If I felt motivated to do something, that was Spirit-filled preaching. But we're gonna to try to look today at this first sermon from a different perspective um, and see that what Peter does here um, is Spirit-filled because the Spirit has just been poured out, but it, what he does is actually preach Christ from the Old Testament. So we'll see three different Old, pa- Old Testament passages referenced. and. All that to say, what Peter here is doing is not just superficially referencing the Old Testament for fun. He is showing that Christ in his life, death, and resurrection is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed to. And so this just has massive implications, but um, I'm going to read the passage. I'll try to point out um, when we jump to the Old Testament, just for your um, help, and then we'll pray real quick. So this is Acts. We'll start at... Acts chapter 2, verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Talking about Pentecost and the people speaking in other languages. But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants... Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all, and down to verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, in crucified. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, there are many... Complex and complicated things um, that can distract us, that can um, cause us to uh, wander in our minds um, from Your truth. Would You give us Your Spirit today that we might see Christ in the Scriptures in His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, and His outpouring of the Spirit. And may we trust in Him today and see the work of Christ more clearly. Um, through your word, by the power of your Spirit, would you do this in your name? We pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, lots there. <laughs> I realize this is probably a little bit overwhelming, but we'll try to break it down. We'll look at three things very quickly. We'll look at the outpouring of the Spirit that um, Peter talks about there in verses um, 12 through the 21. We'll look at the resurrection uh, from verses 30, 22 to 32 where uh, Peter quotes from Psalm 16, and then finally we'll look at the Ascension. And so these are all events, as we're going to see, that Peter is not just going to um, hold up on their own, but he's going to bolster them with quotations from the Old Testament, showing that Jesus is fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies and fulfilling all that the Old Testament wanted to So first, we'll look at the outpouring of the Spirit. And so we looked at this question last week. These people are perplexed. They don't know what's going on. These people are speaking in other languages. um, And they ask, what does this mean? (laughs) And so I think that that can be our question a lot of times. What does this mean? But we'll see that Peter uses this as an opportunity to point to Christ. And so he quotes from Joel 2. It shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he uses this language that's very interesting. Verse 16, if you see it. And I like some of the other translations better. In the King James, it says, This is that. Um, The ESV says, This is what? But this is that. What he's saying is this, that you're seeing and hearing. This Pentecost event where these languages are being poured out. This, that you're seeing, is that. Meaning what Joel spoke about. And we see this for those of you that were with us for our study of Matthew. This happens all the time in the Gospels, especially Matthew the first couple chapters. He'll say this was happened this happened so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled whether it's the virgin birth or um, so Isaiah says the virgin shall conceive. There's other places that we could go to. Out of Egypt I called my son. All these are ways of the, um, the New Testament authors saying that what was spoken by the prophet is being fulfilled in their very midst, whether it's the incarnation of Christ or this outpouring of the Spirit. So we can, it's just helpful to think of the phrase, this is that. This that you're seeing is that which the prophet spoke about. And so we see this, that this is um, happening. And so I just say that because some people tend to push this event off into a future event. But if you read in verse 33, it says, being therefore exalted, at the right hand of the Father, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It's almost the same language. That he's poured out this that you're seeing and hearing. So um, just confirmation that Peter is saying that this event is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. There's a lot of other stuff we could talk about. I'm sure you guys have a million questions. Maybe we can talk about some more specifics after. Um, but yeah, this is that. So just remember that. So that is the outpouring of the Spirit. This fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And then Peter's going to use that to talk about the events that came before this. So why was the Spirit poured out? Why did this happen? And he goes to the resurrection. So that's the second point, is the resurrection. So we looked at the outpouring of the Spirit. Now we'll look at the resurrection and how this event was also promised in the Old Testament and was fulfilled in Christ. Um, And so we see that in verses 25 through 28. We see Peter quote Psalm 16, which was written by David. And specifically verse 27, it says these words. This is David speaking. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. So he's saying that um, there's this looking forward to this event, this resurrection that... um, that this one that will come after David will not be abandoned to Hades and whose soul will not see corruption. And Peter goes on to explain that in verses 29 through um, 32. He essentially says, Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, David, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Meaning, this is that. We see the same thing. This that David spoke about is that which you are seeing and hearing in Christ's resurrection. So even the resurrection of Christ is foretold in the Old Testament and comes to fulfillment in Christ. And so one thing to kind of point out there that I sort of skipped over Verse 23, some of you might be familiar with this verse. A lot of ink has been spilled about what is the meaning of this. Verse 23 puts these two things together that um, can tend to make us uncomfortable. It says, it's talking about Jesus. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So here we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility put right next to each other. And there's like I said, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled about what does this mean, how do these two, two things that go together. I don't necessarily want to get into the nitty-gritty of that, but I do want to just point out why Peter is placing this here, because it does kind of feel like an insert. He's quoting a lot of these Old Testament passages. Why does he throw in this idea of Christ's crucifixion being according to God's definite plan but also turning and accusing these men of killing Christ. And so some people could say, if it was God's plan, then these men shouldn't be held liable or culpable for that. But I think the reason that Peter places this here is because he's going to use all these Old Testament passages to talk about this great hope that was promised in the Old Testament. He's basically showing this is not new. (laughs) This was part of God's plan. We read Genesis 3.15 this serpent-crushing seed of the woman, all the way back in the third um, the third chapter of the Bible, and we saw Joel, the Psalms, there's many other places that we can go. So this plan of this Messiah that would come and save his people is not a new concept in the Bible. So whatever we might say about the crucifixion, it did not happen by chance. It was according to God's definite plan. But Peter also wants to make the point that this was in no way um, to let these people off the hook, these people that crucified the Lord. And so whatever we do, we have to know that these two things are true. And we'll get into a little bit later, but just to reference that, that these ideas of divine sovereignty, God's plan, and human responsibility Peter wants to put them together, and we'll look at the implications of that later. So that is the resurrection, this promised resurrection in Psalm 16, that Christ is this better David that David spoke about that won't see corruption, that, that has been raised. So we looked at the promise of the Holy Spirit um, in the Old Testament being fulfilled, we looked at the resurrection being fulfilled. Um, spoken about in the Old Testament. And finally, we'll be even look at, at the ascension. So if you look at verses 33 through 36, um, specifically in 34 and 35, Peter quotes Psalm 110, which is actually the most quoted Psalm, or I think Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And it says this The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies. Your footstool. So this is David speaking. So if we can just sort of translate this a little bit into what Peter is getting at. This is David speaking. He's saying, The Lord, the Father, Yahweh, said to my Lord, David's Lord, the Christ, the Son of God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So we could say, The Lord, the Father, said to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I always found that wording sort of confusing, so it's kind of helpful to say it like that. So there's a lot that can be said about this. There's implications on the Trinity hinted at even in the Old Testament. We see this enthronement idea, sitting at the right hand of the Father. So the ascension is not just jesus going off into the clouds like we talked about it's him sitting in the seat of power at the right hand of the father some people call it his current session if you think about a judge or a king being in session it's this kingly language of um, sitting down and so this even this ascension of christ is promised in the old testament so all three of these things the outpouring of the spirit The um, resurrection of Christ and the ascension are all promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. And so finally we just kind of turn to the implications of this. And if you look closely at verse 35, it says, Until I make your enemies your footstool. So what he's saying here is Jesus is going to sit at the right hand of the Father until he makes his enemies his footstool. And so we have to kind of put our plate, put ourselves in the place of these people that were hearing this. Peter has just accused them of killing the perfect Son of God, who was sinless, they're the only innocent man ever. And they're reading this, and they're hearing this read that this one that's ascended to heaven, that has all power and all authority, is going to make his enemies a footstool. That's scary. Yeah, and how they probably would have read this before Peter. Um, said this was, yeah, um, this Messiah is going to come and he's going to defeat the Romans. Right? The Romans are the enemy. Um, this Messiah is going to come sit on an earthly throne. He's going to defeat the Romans. We'll be saved. We're not the enemies. We're the good guys. He's going to come defeat the Romans. But the way Peter is reading this, and he's very specific to read that second part about the enemies being made a footstool... It is now these people that are hearing this that are the enemies that will be made a footstool. And so, even though we are not the ones that physically put Christ on the cross, it was our sin that put him there. And so, in some ways, this is very much speaking to us that it is our sin that placed the perfect Son of God on the cross. And so we should feel the weight of that. We should feel the weight that these people felt when they heard these words. And we see, we won't get into it this week, but it says that they were cut to the heart in verse 37. And they say, what shall we do? They are totally ripped apart and they don't know what to do. They realize that they've killed the perfect son of God and that he is going to destroy them, essentially. And so... We can put ourselves there because we know, like we talked about already, that our sin has separated us from God and made us His enemies. And so this is our guilt. This is what makes us liable to punishment, if you will, that our sin has placed Christ on the cross. And so this is also the grace of God in sending Christ, in pouring out His Spirit, in resurrecting His Son, in sending Him to the right hand of the Father. It was not for fun. It was for our salvation. It was so that we might be saved. And like we read, so that the curse that Jesus bore might redeem us. That we who deserve the curse might be made free. And so there's just great gospel truths here. And so we see our guilt, we see God's grace, and um, we can be thankful and have gratitude for what God's done. And we see that response. in our um, this idea of repent and believe for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, And we'll get into that a little bit next week. But just amazing grace in God that He would offer this gospel to the people that killed His perfect Son. Um, So that should give us comfort and um, should give us peace. So um, let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have sent Your Son in the person of Jesus, who was the better David, whose kingdom will have no end, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and who had no sin, and was raised to perfect life, and ascended to the right hand where He lives now to make intercession for us. So may we today, in our sin, turn to Christ. May we look to Him by faith, knowing that the curse was poured out on Him, so that we might be raised to new life, and in our suffering, whether it's sin or um, disease or struggles in our family or work, may we look to the risen Lord who can sympathize with our weakness, who is sovereign over all things, does all things for our good, and has conquered sin and death. May we look to Him this morning by faith. In your name we pray. So if you want to turn in number seven, we'll sing Psalm 23. We did this last week, you guys did really good. Um, For those of you that weren't here, we're going to sing Psalm 23 to the tune of Amazing Grace. So just think Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Um, The words are there on number seven. As long as you want, guys. There's donuts and
1: coffee. Hey! that? I